Crawl Space. I'm Tim, here today alone in the Crawl Space studios. But don't worry, Lance will be back soon. And he does join us on a new show called Beyond Strange World that you may have noticed dropped in your feed. We hope you liked it. It's just episode one. We are doing eight, at least eight, because there are eight Travel Channel episodes of the show called Strange World. And our new podcast is called Beyond Strange World. It's a bit of a departure for us from heavy true crime stuff. And we have the host of the show, the star of the Travel Channel show, Christopher Garitano, on with us to break down each episode and to just get deeper into each topic because some of them need more unpacking. But it's a lot of fun. It's conspiracy theories. There's one about James Dean's haunted car. It's interesting stuff, and we get to kind of push our limits of what we can believe. And I think that's what the show's all about. So join us on this ride if you are into that kind of thing. We do think it's a lot of fun. This episode today is with a mom. Her name is Connie Land. We met her at CrimeCon 2019. She came up to us, she gave us this document that she had written. And it's about her murdered daughter, Sydney Land. Sydney Land and Neo Kaufman were 21 when they were murdered in October of 2016 in Las Vegas. And we have Connie Land here to join us today. It's a sad case, and there seems to be some pretty good persons of interest in this case. Um, as you'll hear from Connie and you'll hear from Doug Papa also, who's written a bunch of articles on this case for the Baltimore Post-Examiner. There are links in the show notes. And before we play the audio, I need to tell you about our upcoming live show with True Crime Obsessed. It's at the Bell House in Brooklyn, October 5th. That's a Saturday, October 5th, 2019. It is going to be a lot of fun. There are links in the show notes. Also, we're planning another event for the Mid-Atlantic region this fall in November, and there will be much more on this this week and next week, and it's going to be a lot of fun. We really hope you can join us, and I'm not going to announce all of it yet. We're going to wait for next week, but uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. Clear your calendar, early November, Mid-Atlantic range. Crawl Space of Palooza, not the official title. Check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash crawlspacepodcast. Last week, I had Jordan Bonaparte of the Nighttime Podcast on with me, and we got pretty goofy. This week, we've got Captain from True Crime Garage who's going to do a Patreon with me. It's going to be a lot of fun. I'm going to quiz him on uh, all sorts of weird stuff. And if you're following on social media, you may have seen that the new show from Crawlspace Media called Incel was just written up by the New York Times. So big congrats to Nama Cates, who is uh, producing that show and hosting it, and it's a wonderful show. There have been two episodes that have been released so far, so you want to subscribe to that. And check out Crawlspace's full archive at Stitcher Premium, stitcherpremium.com. Use code MMM. Thank you very much for listening, everybody, and I hope you enjoy this interview with Connie Land and with Doug Papa. Okay, we are being joined by Connie Land. Connie, how are you today? Fine, Tim. Thank you for having me on the show. Well, thanks for doing this. I really appreciate it. And um, I'm sad to say that uh, your daughter, Sydney, was killed in October of 2016. And your daughter, Sydney Land, she was 21 at the time. I'm so sorry. And we met you. you, 
Now, we met you at CrimeCon in 2019. You uh, you came right up to us um, with so much energy and passion, and you had a document that you had written, which is sort of uh, your story of how you found out and as much of the investigation as you can kind of uh, muster up, I guess, huh? Yeah. It's pretty impressive. Thank you. You know, the reason why I wrote the article was it was a letter because Tim, so many people say, I don't know how you could do this. I don't, I could never imagine being in your shoes. I don't know what I would do if I was in your shoes. I mean, it's always those, those comments we hear all the time. And I thought, you know, I invited people into my most sacred, most tender and most hurtful place when I wrote that story. And it, and it wasn't a story. It was just a recounting of, of the events because I wanted to people to understand and be even in a, even somewhat grasp that place of being, you know, it's like the pendulum. I, the emotion and the sadness and the anguish and everything that we felt on that side. And then dealing with the loss of our daughter and then turning around and having to deal with the frustrations of how this case has gone. The pendulum has swung both ways and I wanted people to just, Step into my space for a moment. That's why I did that. That why I wrote that story. Yeah, it's definitely very powerful. Uh, is this published mm-hmm. online anywhere? Yeah, it's published on um, the BaltimorePostExaminer.com. Okay, it's a phenomenal online um, news publication. And although it's Baltimore, the um, journalist, he's an investigative journalist, Doug Papa, is a, a longtime resident of Las Vegas. And he picked up this story and, and learned about the story. And so he is the one that has written the most accurate articles and information about this story. And so I felt like once I met Doug and we had established a relationship in what we were doing in our efforts, I knew that he was factual and truthful in the information and the art in the information he was writing in his articles. And I felt like that was a great platform for me to write that story because I could express it the way it needed to be expressed without being edited and tampered with. And they were phenomenal in doing that. Great. Yeah. I've um, definitely seen Doug Papa's work on uh, the Baltimore post examiner just in, um, you know, research um, on this case. And he's written a lot of articles on it. And so you guys, you didn't know him beforehand. I didn't know him when I met Doug he reached out at like at 1130 at night. I got a call and said, hey, I want you to know I'm running a story on your daughter. And I had one or two articles. Like if you search Sydney Land, Google, I, I would saw one or two articles about the Baltimore Post Examiner. And my initial thought was, why would someone in Baltimore be writing a story about a double homicide in Las Vegas? Mm-hmm. And then when he reached out, an article, the first article that was written was actually involving Judge Tobias. And when I read his article, I was like, oh my gosh, everything that he was writing in that article was communication and information, a lot of information that I knew in my dealings with Judge Melanie Andrus Tobiason. She's a current judge. And once I knew that, I knew that he knew exactly what he was talking about. I knew the information that he had written in that first article was correct. And so I followed back up to him and I said, listen, this is what you know but you don't know what I know. And that's how we started collaborating in putting the pieces together of this puzzle. 
because I knew what he wrote had been the truth. Wow, that's great. And uh, so I imagine you yeah. guys made a good team um, like that. And Doug is here uh, with you. Doug is actually here. So, uh, yeah, I saw that you uh, you wrote a lot about the case, and uh, but it was a little confusing at first because you wrote for the Baltimore Post-Examiner, but um, it, it's so this story is so Las Vegas-centric. But uh, I understand you're from Las Vegas. Is that accurate? Yeah, I've been in Vegas for 25 years. I'm a former police officer from back east. I've been out here 25 years. I was director of security, two different properties, investigator from Jim Graham when I first got here in the 90s. And now retired on Social Security, writing part-time for the Baltimore Post Examiner. And uh, when you teamed up with Connie to, to discuss Sydney's case, what insight did she give you that you hadn't found yet? Well, she had insight as far as the communication she had with the detectives and um, and what she knew about her daughter's death and her daughter's friends, stuff that, that I didn't know. My involvement came into this before I met Connie last year in the spring of 2018, I had done a recorded telephonic interview on the record with Las Vegas Township Judge Melanie Andrews Tobiason. Because that story, when she was telling me, really, I had no idea what was going on with the murder. It was focused on her giving information about police corruption in the vice unit of the Las Vegas Metron Police Department to an FBI special agent. That's how, this, that's how I got involved with her. And during her talking to me in the interview, she told me she was speaking to an agent named Kevin White and was giving this information about underage prostitution and corruption within the vice unit of the LVMPD. That was the gist of why I was talking to the judge. That was the interest in my case. And I didn't know anything about the Land um, uh, Nehemiah Kaufman murders. Okay, I didn't hear about it. So she mentioned that, but it was just going in one ear about the other. Later on, when I started doing more investigation, that's when I wrote the story because she told me, and I put this in a couple of stories, that the reason why Sidney Land and Neil Kaufman were murdered, and she told me this on the record in in a recording, is that it was supposed to be her and her daughter who were meant to be killed. And it all happened because eight hours prior to the murder on October 26th, okay, allegedly happened at 12.30 in the morning on the 26th. She said eight hours prior, about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, her and her daughter were outed by vice detectives from the Las Vegas Metron Police Department. The judge told me that because of that meeting, that they outed her and her daughter, they told this cop, this Metro cop, the two vice detectives said that we got this information from Judge Tobiasen and basically from her daughter. So they outed her. And she told me that the murders were a direct result of what happened in that meeting about eight hours before the murder. Now, when I published the story, Judge Tobiasen stopped contacting me. She was upset that I published, even though she knew the story was going to be published. Hmm. And I never got a chance to re-interview her to find out what was the link she was talking about, why the murders happened, because she said the wrong two people got murdered. And she says that on the recording, it was supposed to be me and my daughter, but it ended up being Sidney Land and Neil Kaufman because it was a direct result of that meeting when the vice detectives outed me and my daughter. This is all recording on the record. It's in the story that I wrote. So what we have here right now, which is very important to me, is we have a sitting Las Vegas township judge. She's still on the bench, okay, Mm -hmm. telling an investigative journalist on the record in 2018 
that the Sydney Land Neil Kaufman murders occurred because it was supposed to be her and her daughter who was supposed to be killed and not them. And it was a direct result of her and her daughter being outed by vice detectives from the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department. What I do not know at this date is the link between that meeting and why that ended up with Sydney and Neil Kaufman, Sydney Land and Neil Kaufman being murdered. Okay, and the last article you had written on this was in July of uh, July second of twenty nineteen, I believe. Was that the last one? Yeah, the last story I, I, concerning this and the judge was was around July. Uh, you know, what was I think it was just the beginning of July of this, yeah. this month. And it's very comprehensive. You even get uh, former New York police uh, detective Frank Serpico to weigh in, which is kind of cool. Um, so I guess I, I have a little bit of a general question for you. Um, you're a U.S. Army veteran and a police veteran. Is like Why are you so focused on the corruption end? I, I assume it has something to do with your, uh, your career. Yes, I spent, um, I grew up in New York City, you know, real short, brief file here. I grew up in New York City. Um, I spent uh, about two years on the New York City Missouri Police Force, uh, went in the Army, and was a military policeman for three years, got honorable discharge, got out. I was a police officer in the town of Herndon, Virginia, for a year, and then I switched over to the Loudoun County Sheriff's Office in 1980, was there approximately almost 12 years, um, got promoted to the rank of detective, what they call back then criminal investigator. 1986, I did uh, many years undercover. I was criminal investigator of the year. I had, you know, commendations and stuff. So, you know, I write these stories. Frank Serpico is a friend of mine. Yeah. You know, I wrote a 12-page, 12-chapter uh, story on it. So about two, three weeks before the murders that happened on October 26th of 2016, one of the persons of interest, his name is Shane, Shane Valentine, he's in prison right now, um, he tried to kill uh, Neil Kaufman and threatened to kill his girlfriend, Sydney and another girl, this Frankie Zappia, mm-hmm. so much so that on the morning of October 8th of 2016, Shane Valentine went over to Neil Kaufman's mother's house and fired uh, a round or two into the house. At the same time, he was on the phone with Neo, and we have those text messages where he was threatening to kill him and he was going to go after his girlfriend and his mother. And so that's what he's in jail for now, Shane? Well, he's in jail for now for some burglary charges, and he's in jail for shooting into the occupied dwelling, which after documents I just got the past couple days I'm working on for another story, I believe they should have charged him with attempted murder tonight. There were five people in that house. He knew he was he was shooting at the house because he wanted to kill Neo per the text messages. Yeah. And he was only charged with shooting into an occupied dwelling. So that'll be another story that'll be coming out hopefully in the in the next couple of days. Okay, great. And uh, does this Judge Tobiasen does she uh, preside over any of the uh, the districts or any like Shane's case? Or anything like that? In her recorded interview with me, she was presiding over in 2015 some cases with Shane Valentine. She later told me that she ended up um, excusing herself. Also, what came out, just so you know, so I get on the record, is she told me that she had threatened Shane Valentine through his attorney at the time. She had called up the attorney and said, he better stay away from my daughter because her daughter also had an involvement with Shane Valentine. This, I know this is very convoluted, but yeah. this is all true. It sounds crazy. Later on, she told me that she actually went over to his house, and I put that in the story, and she kicked in the door to Shane Valentine's residence. Okay? So we got this involvement with this judge whose daughter had involvement not only with Shane Valentine, one of the persons of interest in the murders, but also with Neil Kaufman, 
uh, one of the deceased, you know, on, with the double homicide with Sidney Land. And um, so it's a very convoluted case. It's very troubling because, you know, you have a judge, you have this alleged police corruption, you got a judge being outed. The judge says the reason why the murders happened was because it was supposed to be me and my daughter. And it was all because of that meeting that happened eight hours prior with the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department vice detectives when they outed her and her daughter as being a source of information to another Las Vegas Metropolitan Police officer and his daughter, who was an alleged prostitute for Shane Valentine, who was now allegedly working for Neil Kaufman. Um, very convoluted, but when you separate everything, it's not really that, that you know, convoluted as it is. So that's where we stand at this point. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Doug, for, uh, for chatting with us uh, for a few minutes here. I appreciate it. Um, we will definitely be checking out uh, your, your future articles, and uh, I'll link to, um, to your other ones in the show notes. Okay, I'm going to put Connie back on. Very cool. So do you, do you get to see Doug often or uh, you when, when you guys are working together? No, you know what? I've seen Doug a handful of times. A lot of our communication is, you know, through phone conversation or just sharing, sharing information via email or different things like that. But he lives close. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, good. Um, yeah, I was wondering because uh, yeah. the Baltimore connection made it a little confusing or the Baltimore uh, post yeah. examiner for a second there. But um, okay. So I just want to uh, take it back a little bit here. And um, what was your daughter, Sydney, like? You know, Sydney was one of the most loving people you'll ever meet. She was very giving. She was not a, she was not a, she didn't have a judgmental bone in her body. She was friends with anyone and everyone. She was a very loyal person. She was a little quiet until you got to know her. And she was just kind of this fun, giggly, you know, girl. And she loved, she loved her family. She really loved us. And she was very close to Preston, my son. And, but she loved each of the kids in an individual way. And I think the best way that I can describe Sydney, we had done a personal development class, her and I had done it together. And one day we came home and Sydney had put post, post-it notes all around the frame of the boys' desks in their room and Kendall's mirror, my, my youngest daughter. And on each of the notes she put, she personalized each message. And on one she would put, you are loving, you are the best brother, you are kind, you are smart. And she wrote personal comments or personal compliments to each of the kids. And when the kids came home, they walked into their room and all of those notes were all over their rooms. And that's how Sydney was. She, um, she was just amazing, really amazing. It's very sweet. Yeah, she was yeah. very, very she, She's like your three o'clock friend. Like if you broke down, you know, when people go, what kind of friend is this? Are they like, if you're, if you get a flat tire at three in the morning, is this the person you could call? Sydney was absolutely the person that you could call. She would be there for you in a minute. Right. Wow. Yeah. You, you could call me at 3 p.m., but probably not 3 a.m. Exactly. But Sydney was the 3 a.m. She was that type of person. Yeah. That's amazing. And uh, how many siblings yeah. did she have? She has three others. She has um, two brothers and one sister. So Sydney was the oldest, and then Preston, Gavin, and Kendall. I'm so sorry. And they're two years apart, give or take a few months. Yeah. And what was this like for them? You know, it has, Preston was 
they each had a unique relationship. Kendall was, you know, the, the sister. So even though there was almost six years difference between the two, you know, that was her younger sister. She loved Gavin and she was very protective of Gavin and held a really special place. Gavin felt had a really special place in Sid's heart. And Preston was Sydney's best friend. They would just giggle and did dumb kid they did, did <laughs> dumb things together. And that's just what they did. And so what this has been for them has been a nightmare, a complete nightmare. And there's always firsts. There's always firsts. You know, Kendall just graduated from high school and everybody's like, she should be here. And she should have been. So it's, there's always events that take place in our life that reopened a wound of reminding us how she should be there. And so it's just something we'll never fully heal. There's never a fully healing of this. Right. You don't ever really ever get over it. And it's things you never think of. Preston turned 22 this year. He was now older than Sydney. Mm. Sydney died when she was 21. And so that was a very difficult birthday. His 21st birthday was so tough. 22nd was very tough because Sydney was 21 when she died. And now Preston's older than Sydney in, in being around. And that, you know, you wouldn't think about that, but you do. What do they think um, of your pursuit for justice or exposure in this case? I'm very vocal. I am very relentless in, in, in doing this clearly to go to CrimeCon with only the intention of handing out this information to get this story out to different people because of the difficulties in, in exposure to this case. And I think it's painful for the kids. They don't really talk about Sydney a whole lot. Um, I think it hurts them. And I try to keep balance because I, you know, it would be very easy to become, you know, unbalanced in, in moving forward on this. So I have to make sure and put this on the shelf for a while. And my kids are still here. I still have a family here and in keeping my, you know, checks and balances in place, Sydney would not want me to obsess on something like this. And I can't, I own a business. I have three kids. I have a husband and a family and a life. And so we just take it in stride. Yeah. Well, that's good. And, uh, I saw your, um, your email address is, uh, just because gifts. Is that a, that's your own business? Yeah. So I am just because gifts and 702 promos. So it's a custom gift company and a promotional or branded marketing company here in Las Vegas. So I've done that. 702 promos has been about 13 years and just because gifts has been 20, 25 years in a long time. Wow. That's very cool. And so you're, yeah. uh, you've, uh, been in Las Vegas for a long time. Were you born there too? No, I was actually born in Whittier. So outside of Los Angeles, oh, I grew okay. up in Southern California. Yeah. So I grew up in Southern California and my dad retired from the LAPD and we moved away. And then, um, I, I went to college and out of, out of state, moved back to California and then moved back home with my parents. And that's where I met Steve. And then we moved back to California and they ended up in Las Vegas. So we've been here since 94. Your, your father was a former LAPD officer. Uh, is he still mm-hmm. around? He's still around. Wow. What does he think? Yeah. You know, my dad was the epitome of what a great 
police officer should be. And so this has been very difficult to see the inconsistencies in the case, Mm -hmm. to see how the police have handled this case, to see just, he's like, Connie, I mean, this is not how we did police work back, you know, back in the day. And I know that how certain things have happened along the case, you know, along the way in this case is not the norm. And so he's like, you know, Con, there's good guys that are on here. They're going to, the truth is going to come out. The truth is going to come out. Just keep doing the right thing. Yeah. Truth will come out. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what we do. And that's what we do. You know, I don't hinge my efforts on the results because there there are so many variables in this case and so many people that are involved in the final outcome and the results of this case. So very early on, I gauged my success strictly by my efforts. And so, for example, when I went to CrimeCon, I knew I needed to get this story out to every single person that I possibly could. And that's what I did. I wasn't going to be disappointed. I was just, I would be disappointed if I didn't get any calls back, but I knew that my efforts, I was responsible for my efforts and that was getting there and giving 100%. And so, and, and how that efforts were perceived or followed up on by, you know, the people that I handed the information out to, I couldn't be responsible for that. Right. And that's how I've, how I've geared, you know, how I've kept myself accountable in this process. And how many of these um, pamphlets, uh, documents did you hand out? I brought, I think, I think I had 70, 71. Wow. And I knew I had to hand out 71. And I think I handed out 70. I found two in my bag. <laughs> I found two <laughs> in my bag. So I did exactly what I needed to. People are like, did you go out? Did you, you know, did you go to the, no, I was there to work. Yeah, I was there for Sydney and for no for no other reason but that. So that was my effort. That was the focus, the focal point of being there. Well done. Well, yeah, I hope you get um, a bunch of other calls as well. Um, Yeah, from our perspective, I think we couldn't possibly ignore you or this case after meeting you and and being handed this um, emotional document. Take coloring your hair at home to the next level with Madison Reed. You deserve gorgeous professional hair color delivered to your door for less than $25. For decades, women have had only two options for coloring their hair. So sad, only two. Outdated at home color or the time and expense of a salon. Many Madison Reed clients comment how their new hair color has improved their lives. Like our friend Samantha, who we met at CrimeCon. Women love the results. Gorgeous, shiny, multi-dimensional, healthy-looking hair. Madison Reed delivers gray, covering, game-changing color that you can do right at your home. But look as if you just came from the salon. What makes Madison Reed Color unique is that it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm to create over 45 gorgeous multi-tonal shades. And we all know how much Lance's sister loves the quality, convenience, and affordability of Madison Reed, so much so that this weekend she took a hot air balloon ride and took a bunch of color kits up there with her, um, but had to be stopped and restrained from throwing them down. Uh, They had to tell her that that was a hazard. But that's how excited she is about Madison Reed. She just wanted to share it with everybody. So find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. Crawlspace listeners get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with code CRAWLSPACE. That's code CRAWLSPACE at madison-reed.com. 
Did uh, did your kids or your yeah. husband uh, read this document as well? I think my husband, I gave it to him to read, and you know he he's been through it. I I discussed it with the kids, and whether they read it or not, I, I've kind of left it up to them to to reading articles and and how they process this information. I'm not going to shove something on them that they're not comfortable with. Yeah. I knew this was something I needed to do for me because part of this was part of writing that was very healing for me and writing about my emotion with Sydney was much easier to write than the frustrations of the case because those were those feelings with Sydney and finding her and seeing her for the first time those are very sacred personal emotions and thoughts that I had and they were very private with my daughter and so that was easier for me to write about because it was a it was a calm it was more of a sacred reverence of emotion where dealing with the frustrations and the anger of the things that we've dealt with in the case that fills me with rage and anger and that is then I get mad and then I'm all over and so those emotions are much harder for me to corral than those emotions with Sydney because there's a lot more in play with those so it was harder for me to write the the parts about the case than it was about Sydney. I could see that. I was very clear on my thought. Yeah, I was very clear on my thoughts with Sydney. Those were very private moments and those are easier to, easier to decipher. Painful, but easier to decipher. I, I'm curious what it would have been like for you if you hadn't written this. You know, in working in this case and, and doing what I'm doing in getting this out to the public and, and trying to hold the police accountable on all the different things, creating awareness to this, this has been very therapeutic for me and a huge sense of healing for me. My personality, I'm not the type to sit back and do nothing. That's just not in my DNA in any way, shape, or form. And Sydney would expect this from me. I mean, everything that I'm doing, it, you know, if Sydney was here and say, what would you expect from my mom? She would say she, I would expect her to do exactly what she's doing. And, and so for that, I feel like my responsibilities as a mother did not end when Sydney died. My responsibility as a mother continues as long as I need to provide protection, awareness, whatever it is. Because Sydney's not here doesn't mean that I just wash my hands and walk away. Absolutely not. She needs us as much now as she did when she was here. And so that's the opportunity that I get to do as her mother in providing in, in doing this. If you don't mind me asking, how much did it cost you to print these documents out and, and get to CrimeCon and everything? I've spent a lot of money. And so for doing the documents, you know, I have a great printer, but I mean, I was into thousands to get to CrimeCon in the hotel and all the different things. But then we've also run billboards and the billboards we've run, you know, we did one set that was five grand for three months. You're about 40, excuse me, 4,500. And I did those for three months. So, you know, I'm at 13.5 on that. And then we've run the billboards for Sydney two other times at 2,500 a month. And we did them for a few months. So I'm well over 20 grand that I've, I, that we've personally, we have, we've had a few donations through GoFundMe or Facebook. Um, but, you know, I, we've paid for those and not including the time. I mean, I can't put a monetary value on the time researching and phone calls and emails. So, it doesn't matter, you know? So yeah, we've spent a lot of money. We spent a lot of money, Yeah. but it was, it's been required. It's been required. So it's not a, it's been a challenge financially, but it was one that 
that was absolutely necessary to keep this story out there. I'm curious, did you personally know Neo Kaufman, who was also a victim in this case? So I had met Neo. Actually, the very first time that I met Neo was at the dentist office when we were getting our teeth cleaned, and it was an incident that I had discussed in the story. Sydney brought him in, and I'm like, hey, nice to meet you. And we, he was very quiet. We briefly chatted, and then I went in, and, and then we left. And then I saw Neo again. And he'd come over, he came to the home, you know, came to our house. And so I spoke to him very briefly. Steve wasn't home. And um, we talked, he was very pleasant, very quiet and very, you know, very pleasant. But that was the only, those were the only times that I had met him. And I, I thought he was a nice guy. Yeah. You know, it wasn't until after I started hearing things that, and unfortunately, you know, warning signs started going off while Sydney was alive. But a lot of the things that I learned was was after they mm. passed. Yeah. So when they were killed, they were in their apartment together? Correct. Can you talk a little bit about the circumstances? Yeah. So Sydney, you know, I think people are under the impression that Sydney and Neil had been together for a really long time. They hadn't. They had been together a couple months at best. And my understanding is July, August, right around in August is, is when they met. So this this was not like a long-standing, long relationship. And Sydney got the apartment in her name only in September. And so they hadn't been in that apartment a long time before they were killed. My understanding and based on the information that I have been told was Sydney was not supposed to be in the apartment that night. Um, per Frankie and her communication with me, she had said that we tried to get her out of the apartment. She wasn't supposed to be home. The intention that night was, based on Frankie, was they were all supposed to go to Dre's that night. Neo was not because he wasn't 21, but they were supposed to go up. And then Sydney had actually booked a hotel room at the Link that night at 11.48 p.m. on October 25th in her notes in her Gmail account, the confirmation number, she had written the confirmation number in. So the intention was to go to Dre's and then go to the Link Hotel on the Strip, hang out for a couple of days with all their friends. And I think the checkout day was the 28th. And interestingly enough, no one showed up at the hotel. No one called Sydney. No one texted her. No one Snapchatted her. No one did an Instagram or a private message to her. To wonder. So I thought it was odd that, you know, they're friends. They're all supposed to hang out and meet. Sydney doesn't show up. And Frankie was the last one to see him alive. She had been at the apartment that night. And it's my understanding that Frankie was supposed to give Sydney and Nehemiah a ride that night. And the police told me that she was the last, our detectives told us that Frankie was the last person to see Sydney alive. And that's how we know that. So I find it very odd that no one knew. But the circumstances of the night, Sydney was, um, they were in the apartment, Nehemiah and Sydney. Um, we know that there was not, this was not a forced entry. We know that Neo was shot for um, the police in the living room. Sydney was in the bedroom and she was shot there. Okay. And um, was, was Shane known to be an enemy of uh, Neo at that point? So Shane... And Nehemiah, I guess, knew each other. And again, I didn't know about this until after. And, and a lot of the things that I've learned have been through 
news articles and, and different publications and in speaking to the police. And But there was, the shooting on October 8th is, is critical mm-hmm. because in the text messages on October 8th, there was a falling out and between Nehemiah and Shane Valentine. Um, what I've been told is that, that Shane was looking for Nehemiah. There was a couple phone calls. Shane called Sydney's cell phone looking for Nehemiah. Frankie answered Sydney's phone, pretending like she was Shane. And I guess that there was some disrespecting going on between the communication. They went to Red Rock Casino, Shane, Frankie, Sydney, and Nehemiah. And there was an altercation and some arguing there. It was a few hours later, Shane went over to Nehemiah Kaufman's mother's home or family home and called Neo out, said he was going to kill him. He was a dead man, shot into the house through one or two rocks through the window and ran his car into the closed garage door. And that's what elevated an in-text messages that the police said that there were text messages between Nehemiah and Shane that Shane was going to kill Nehemiah and his girlfriend, and and I've heard Frankie. And so from that, the, the death threats continued until the night of the murders. Sydney was, they were both executed, and Sydney was shot in the face, and Nia was shot in the head also. And they, they had mentioned that Shane was around the apartment. Around the time of the murder, he turned his phone off as he went to California he turned his phone back on in Baker immediately after the murders, and he was picked up in Los Angeles a few days later. Okay, so he sort of uh, crossed state lines pretty soon he after? He crossed state lines. And that was yeah. like a couple days after the murders? A couple days after the murder. The police detectives went down. He was Shane was picked up, and they extradited him back to Las Vegas. Okay, good. And... Uh, is, do you have any idea what their spat was about originally? You know, I know that her, the detective Shane, Neil was involved in, um, there was some gang affiliation. We They have mentioned that Neil was getting into pimping. We know that he was doing home invasions with Shane Valentine. And so there were multiple things that Neil was involved in. Shane is also a pimp. Um, and he has, has been arrested for countless home invasions and burglaries. And so the probability could have been over a girl and pimping and, and prostitution and human trafficking. That could be a possibility. Could it be over a gun? We've heard it was over a gun. We've heard it was over home invasions. And so there's we don't know why, but there's a lot of different probabilities, and we know that you know, Neil was entwined with Shane in a few different variables, both in pimping and in, you know, both being pimps and both they did home invasions together. Were there any witnesses to the crime or the anyone hear any sounds? Really interesting that you say that. Really interesting that you say that because I had an opportunity. It was a fluke thing. I went into the apartment with Nehemiah's mother in February of 2017, and it just happened, the apartment door was open, and we were able to go into the apartment. It was about 5.30 at night, Sydney Neo's apartment, and I had never been in there. And Tim, it was crazy, because I could hear the, the downstairs, Sydney, was, they lived upstairs. Downstairs, I could hear the baby crying downstairs. I could hear his their phone ring. I could hear their TV on. So I find it 
completely odd that there were that no one called in two shootings that would have been heard. I know the police had made mention sometime after that they that there was a there was an officer I believe from Michigan and his wife he's retired. They lived in the direct site of the apartment complex upstairs downstairs I'm not sure. And it, they didn't come forward. It was the police that truck that tracked them down. And what the detective told me and again I don't know if it's the truth or not but this is what the detectives had said so I'm just going to assume that the information is accurate. He said, Connie, they were night owls. He said the woman was the the wife was sitting on the couch. All she had to do was move the blinds and she would have seen who was at the door. What she said was she heard pounding on the door, she heard arguing, she heard one gunshot, a second gunshot, and scuffling. She went into her husband, who was in the bedroom, and said, did, did that sound like gunshots? He said, yes, and they went to bed. He said, Connie, had they called 911, would have completely changed the outcome of, you know, potentially changed the outcome of how this case was. All she had to do was move the blinds, and she would have seen who it was. Mm. But they never called. And I find it crazy that no one called in to gunshots at night. And I actually pulled the 911 calls or the response calls to that address just to see. And, you know, per the records, you know, and I don't know if records can be manipulated, but there were no 911 calls about potential gunshots heard that night. And uh, what what about Frankie Zapia? She um, was a friend of Sydney's? Yeah. Sydney has known Frankie since junior high. They went to junior high, so they've been friends since junior high. And Frankie was, you know, overweight. She was very, she was really a simple girl in high school. And, you know, Sydney went away to school. I don't know what Frankie did. And I don't know when they reconnected at what point. I'm not sure. I don't know if they were in continual communication. I know that one of Frankie's relatives told me that Sydney was at the house when they learned that Frankie was a prostitute. I guess a, a card came up that she um, had a warrant for arrest or needed to appear in court. And she said Sydney was so mad that they knew that Frankie was a prostitute because their understanding was Frankie was working at Cane's and working at Hurley or something like that. And Sydney had severed communication with Frankie. I know in the summer of 2016, Sydney was not in communication with Frankie. And I know this through messages on her phone or in her social media that she was not in communication because Frankie was trying to get in touch with Sydney and, and they hadn't been in communication. So Frankie was in jail in um, the summer of 2016 and had reached out to a friend of, of theirs and wanted Sydney to reach out to her. So their friendship reconnected in, I would imagine, August, July, August, when Frankie was in jail. And Frankie was a prostitute. And she's, my understanding, she's been a prostitute for Shane at one point and was a prostitute for Dominic Thompson. Okay. And uh, have you been in touch with Frankie? You know, we didn't know any of this was going on. And unfortunately, you know, information that we were talking, I was, I talked to Frankie initially. And then when we started to see things were not adding up, I severed, I severed ties with Frankie and it was um, her sister that had reached out in October or excuse me, end of November 1st of December of 2016. Her sister had reached out to me and said that she believed that Frankie 
and her pimp Domo were somehow involved in the in the in the homicide. Didn't say they shot him. Didn't say anything of that. But that they were somehow involved in that she was going to go to homicide and tell them the information she had heard on the phone in Frankie's communication with her mother the night of the of the homicide. So. You know, once I learned those things, I severed communication with Frankie because I knew at that point she hadn't been truthful yeah. or was truthful, but wasn't disclosing her her real relationship with Sydney. And it's disappointing because as good of a friend that Sydney was to Frankie, uh, it's devastating to think that Frankie would do this to Sydney yeah. or know about it and not come forward. I know Sydney would have gone to the police. She would have. Right. And uh, so it seems like there's a little bit of a social media element to the investigation, whether it be um, yeah. with messages on or or the lack of messages, I should say, even um, between Sydney and Frankie and some of her other friends. Is that that accurate? That's accurate. I had actually given um, because I'm not very social media savvy and, and with Sydney's communication and the information that was going on, I had actually had given access to my niece to help me, Frankie, um, Lauren Harvey, I'd actually given her Sydney's login to help me retrieve information and collect anything that I could on Sydney's social media. Her, And interestingly enough, I don't know how this happened, but all the communication between Frankie, Lauren, and Sydney were deleted. And any phone calls or any photos were deleted. That was concerning. Yeah, I would say so. Did um, the police get that stuff before it was deleted? Tim, here's the thing. I don't the police. I don't think the police have really done a whole lot on this case. I provided that information to them in November, 1st of November. I gave them her passwords, passcodes, phone records, and and Sydney was on our phone. That's why I know that you know that there weren't there wasn't any communication. I know that Frankie had had tried to communicate in the middle of the night, the night of the murder, through text message. And so I do know that there was five text messages that Frankie tried to reach out to Sydney at 1.52 a.m. But I don't know, because Sydney's phone was damaged, I don't know what the content of those phone records are. I just know that Frankie tried to reach out to Sydney that morning, or and, and that was the only messages that were done. You know, as far as that's concerned, it's been, it's been difficult because the police didn't follow up on that information. It wasn't until October of this past year so going on two years, I have had some independent people start doing some research and reaching out and looking into some things, and there were some major discrepancies, and I learned at that time they hadn't even bothered to look into Sydney's phone records, and or the day the murders happened, they hadn't bothered to look into that, and I don't believe, and they asked me who Sydney's phone carrier was. Mm-hmm. Well, they should have known who our phone carrier was. They'd had her, our phone records for two years. Ugh. And it wasn't until May of 2019, I had given them a name was given to us that was, and we know Neil was controlling Sydney's phone. And we know that because my daughter would call, Kendall would call Sydney and Neil would answer. Or Sydney would say, it's just, Kendall, please let me talk to her. And we know from her other friends that Neil was controlling Sydney's phone, who she could talk to. So there's a great possibility that Neil was using Sydney's phone in, in some outbound call phone calls that were made the day of the murder, who were pretty, there was some unsavory people that were connected in that phone calls that were made that day to outgoing calls. And the police didn't even bother to look into those names until 
May of this year when they said they did a, a search. So I don't think the police have done a whole lot on this case, to be honest with you. Yeah, well, that is a uh, a shame. How are you uh, feeling about where, where everything is now? I mean, is there any any positive uh, news coming in your in your opinion? Um, there is the the police will not communicate with me at that at this point. Uh huh. I am in my last communication on in May. You know, and here's the thing is is call it a coincidence, call it not. You know, we know that we know that Detective Grimmett in my case was leaking information to Judge Tobiason throughout the entire investigation. And I know while I was in communication with the judge, he was in communication with her. We know that Greg Flores is the godfather to Frankie Sapia and or lifelong friend. We know per Detective Dosh that Greg Flores is the one that issued the search warrant on Frankie's apartment. Now, why they would have a godfather or lifelong family friend involved in the homicide investigation where his goddaughter is a suspect or a person of interest, I'm not quite sure. Why Detective Grimmett was leaking information to a judge who was directly linked in threatening the life of Shane Valentine and kicking in his door and her daughter. The police, we went to the, we went to, uh, there's just been nothing but inconsistencies in the autopsy, in the reports that were done, in dates, in times, in you name it. They've got Sydney in three different outfits in her autopsy report. They've got leaking of information, Grimmett going on national television on Crime Watch Daily, saying that the that the, basically the DNA was a mess. There were cigarette butts, ashtrays, coffee cups. They don't know who was supposed to be there, who wasn't supposed to be there. You know, and I know that per the judge, she told me that there was DNA evidence in the in the house. So basically, to me, the homicide detectives have ruined any possibility of DNA evidence being used, knowing that there is corruption and ties to DAs and pimps and prostitutes that may not be directly linked to this case per se, but because we know that element has existed in the FBI investigation, which was confirmed by Sheriff Lombardo, that is a very big concern, knowing pimps and prostitutes were involved in the FBI investigation. Pimps and prostitutes are involved in this case, and there have been statements made again by the judge, um, Melanie Tobiason, that links Shane Valentine to Molly Mall, who is part of the FBI investigation. I mean, so so is there cover-up? Quite possible. Possible. I knew that it was the police. I felt very early on that the police weren't going to do a whole lot to solve this case for whatever reason, and that this case wasn't going to move forward. And look, almost three years later, there's no person of interest, official persons of interest. There's no motives. There's no anything. There's absolutely nothing. And I find that very, very, very hard to believe. And so I knew in my efforts, I was, and there has been no media coverage on this case, which is a major case, by the way. Yeah. When you're talking judges and DAs and, and, and vice corruption and cops and, and FBI investigations and all the things that are going on, it's crazy that the media has been dead silent in this case. Doug Pop is the only one that's been writing about this story. Yeah. Because everybody else is, you know, they'll talk about the billboards or different things that we've done. So we have done a lot of interviews, but nothing of real relevance as to the case. It's like we want people to come forward. We're doing the billboards, real very surface interviews, which I'm so grateful for because it's keeping the story out there. And so, you know, that's that is great. But the real nuts and bolts of what's going on in this case have been written by by Doug on, at the Baltimore Post Examiner. I knew very early on the only way. This case will be solved 
is by national exposure and pressure from podcasts, from news outlets that are not linked to people here. This is a very small town, Las Vegas is a very small town. And so that's why I knew I was going to have to go outside of this valley to have people start asking questions that they can't, they can't run and hide anymore. So that's, that's what I'm doing. I'm just, I'm just going outside of the valley for hope, for help. And you're one of them. Well, great, Connie. I'm definitely happy to help. And um, hopefully this, uh, this helps shake things up a little bit and uh, we'll definitely share this far and wide and uh, yeah, if you want me to try to introduce you to any other um, podcasters or any other people that we might know, I can certainly try get the story out. Even that would further. be fantastic. Yeah, anyone that you anyone that you feel could help share the story, provide insight, anything that you can do, I am absolutely open to talk to. I need your help. You guys are you know you are my partner in in helping solve this case, and so. I'm open to speaking to anybody. I'm open to discussing the case with anyone. And so, yeah, pass it along, share it with whatever, whoever. I'm I'm grateful for it. What I would suggest mm-hmm. is a concern that a concern that I also have is as of a few weeks ago, about a month ago, I called Crime Stoppers, yeah. which is a national organization that people can call in. As of a month ago, there has not been one, not one phone call into Crime Stoppers about this case. And I find that numerically impossible, knowing that there's 3 million people in this valley. This has been on national television. This has been through all over the country, the exposure of this case that there hasn't been one person that's called in. And per the detectives, per Detective Dosh, they had one phone call about this case of information that's that's come in. So whether that's truth or not, um, that's also a big concern that they they may not be taking information in. So my suggestion would be Doug Papa. I can provide Doug Papa's information, and I know that Doug will um, he, any information that has come in or would come in. We will share the information with the police department because we're all on the same page. We want this case solved. But I, I would prefer to have any information go to Doug's email or his cell phone number. That can be that I'll provide to you, and so for any leads, any information, anything that's needed, you can do that, and he's offered that, which is phenomenal. And I want to thank you, Tim. Honestly, I I have mentioned this before, but I will mention it again. You are the voice of my daughter. You are the voice of my family, and you're reaching avenues that we we couldn't reach if it wasn't for you. And you create a sense of hope for myself and for our family in moving this case forward. So what you do can't, and our appreciation cannot be put into words. And just know how truly grateful I am for the opportunity, for you sharing this information, for talking to me at CrimeCon, and and helping us move this forward in a way that justice will come for Sydney.